Hello ladies and gentlemen and everybody else in between, welcome to Invisible London. Uh, it has been over a year since the last podcast and so if you're hearing this, thank you very much for being patient and sticking with me. Um, today it is uh, it's Monday, the 7th of June uh, 2021. And I am currently sat in the garden with my sun hat on, as it's a very hot afternoon. Uh, So I'm trying something slightly different uh, to record this week. And we've got a slightly different style of podcast as well. Um, Obviously over the last year I would have liked to have um, uh, kept up a little bit more uh, with the podcasting and get a few more episodes out. But I was... uh, terribly busy and other things seem to get in the way so you'll just have to accept my apologies uh, for that Um, but I'll also say thank you very much to anyone who has downloaded any episodes and listened along and I can see that um, bizarrely people are still downloading it nearly every day there's um, five or six new downloads so there's there's, there's people finding it and and listening so uh, thank you very much for sticking with me and uh, and joining in so yeah, I've sat down an awful lot over the last few months, and actually going through my notebook, I found that I've got more or less two or three full episodes of record, almost not recorded, um, but um, you know written down, note form, and uh, you know ready to go. But um, why I never got round to it, I don't, I, I don't know. But there we are. Um, but uh, I keep coming up with ideas and starting research and I suddenly end up going down different paths and finding different things that suddenly fascinate me and uh, this happened uh, about a week and a half ago Um, I found a little short story um, by uh, the author Arthur Macken M-A-C-H-E-N Macken, Machen who knows? Arthur Macken. I've been saying it in my head anyway, so um, you have to forgive me if I'm pronouncing that wrong. Um, but it's a it's a pen name anyway for a chap called uh, actually no, what is his real name? Um, uh, Arthur Llewellyn Jones, uh, a Welsh author. So um, if I'm pronouncing it wrong, then uh, you'll just have to uh, forgive me. But it's not his real name anyway, so I guess I can pronounce it however I like. Um, but anyway, the story is called The Great God Pan, and it has been. Um, praised as one of the greatest horror stories ever written, and I have heard about it, you know, in in the past because obviously this is an area of interest, and um, I never actually read it until recently, where um, I found it uh, online as an ebook on the um, uh, the project Gutenberg. So I uh, you can find it on there and I think you can get various different versions so you can either read it on the laptop like I did um, or you can get it um, for Kindle and various other um, downloadable files so there's no excuse not to read it if you're interested in this sort of thing Um, but you might be wondering why I'm going to be reading um, this story for you when this is a podcast about London Um, well first of all um, it's a story told in eight parts, um, quite short chapters, um, uh, which uh, tell the, uh, the story of, well, that would, uh, that would ruin it, wouldn't it? Um, but uh, obviously as we go, what I'm going to be doing is um, reading a chapter uh, and then exploring a little bit of um, um, some of the topics raised uh, in the chapter. 
um, and slowly but surely, if you if you stick with it uh, over the next eight episodes, uh, you'll realise how this fits in um, to a podcast about uh, the mysterious history of London uh, and uh, the sort of weird and wonderful characters that um, play a part in the story, as well as the uh, the author himself and some of his interests. So, I guess, without any further ado, uh, here we have the first chapter of The Great God Pan by Arthur Macken. Chapter 1. The Experiment. I'm glad you came, Clark. Very glad indeed. I wasn't sure you could spare the time. Well, I was able to make arrangements for a few days. Things are not very lively just now, but uh, have, no, have you no misgivings, Raymond? Is it absolutely safe? The two men were slowly pacing the terrace in front of Dr. Raymond's house. The sun still hung above the western mountain line, but it shone with a dull red glow that cast no shadows, and all the air was quiet. A sweet breath came from the great wood on the hillside above, and with it at intervals the soft murmuring call of the wild doves. Below, in the long, lovely valley, the river wound in and out between the lonely hills, and as the sun hovered and vanished into the west, a faint mist, pure white, began to rise from the hills. Dr. Raymond turned sharply to his friend. Safe? Of course it is. It is itself the operation's perfectly simple one. Any surgeon could do it. Well, and there's no danger at any other stage? Well, none. Absolutely no physical danger whatsoever, I give you my word. You are always timid, Clark, always. But you know my history. I've devoted myself to transcendental medicine for the last twenty years. I've heard myself called a quack and a charlatan and an imposter, but all the while I knew I was on the right path. Five years ago I reached the goal, and since then every day has been preparation for what we shall do tonight. Well, I should like to believe it is all true. Clark knit his brows and looked doubtfully at Dr. Raymond. Are you perfectly sure, Raymond, that your theory is not a phantasmagoria, a a splendid vision, certainly, but a mere vision, after all. Dr. Raymond stopped in his walk and turned sharply. He was a middle-aged man, gaunt and thin, of a pale yellow complexion. But as he answered Clark and faced him, there was a flush in his cheek. Now look about you, Clark. You see the mountain and the hill following after hill as wave on wave. You see the woods and the orchard, the fields of ripe corn, and the meadows reaching to the riverbeds by the river. You can see me standing here beside you, and you can hear my voice. But I tell you, all these things, yes, from that star that has just shone out in the sky to the solid ground beneath our feet, I say that all of these are but dreams and shadows, and shadows that hide the real world from our eyes. There is a real world, but it's beyond this glamour and this vision, beyond them all, there's beyond a veil. I do not know whether any human being has ever lifted that veil, but I do know, Clark, that you and I shall see it lifted this very night from before another's eyes. You may think this all strange, and it may be strange, but it is true, and the ancients knew what lifting the veil means. They called it seeing the god Pan. Clark shivered, the white mist gathering over the river. It's wonderful indeed, he said. We're standing on the brink of a strange world, Raymond, if what you say is true. And I suppose the knife is absolutely necessary. Oh yes, a slight lesion in the grey matter, that's all. A trifling rearrangement of certain cells. The microscopical alteration that would escape the attention of 99 brain surgeons out of 100. But I don't want to bother you with shop, Clark. I might give you the mass of technical detail which would sound very imposing and would leave you as enlightened as you are now. But I suppose you've read casually in out-of-the-way corners of your paper that 
Immense strides have been made recently in the physiology of the brain. I saw a paragraph the other day about Digby's theory and Brown Favor's discoveries. Theories and discoveries. Pfft. Where they are standing now, I stood 15 years ago. And I need not tell you that I've not been standing still for the last 15 years. It will be enough if I say that five years ago I made the discovery that I alluded to when I said that ten years ago I reached the goal. After years of labour, after years of toiling and groping in the dark, after days and nights of disappointments and sometimes of despair, despair, in which I used now and then to tremble and grow cold with the thought that perhaps there were others seeking for what I sought, and at last, after so long, the pang of sudden joy thrilled my soul, and I knew the long journey was at an end. By what seemed then, and still seems, a chance, the suggestion of a mere moment's idle thought, followed up upon familiar lines and paths that I had tracked a hundred times already, and a great truth burst upon me, and I saw, mapped out, in lines of sight, a whole world, a sphere unknown, continents and islands, and great oceans in which no ship has sailed, since man first lifted up his eyes and beheld the sun, and the stars of heaven, and the quiet earth beneath. You will think this is all rather high-flown language, Clark, but it's hard to be literal. And yet, I do not know whether I'm hinting at cannot be set forth in plain and lonely terms. For instance, this world of ours is pretty well girded now with telegraph wires and cables. Thought, with something less than the speed of thought, flashes from sunrise to sunset, from north to south, across the floods and the desert places. Suppose an electrician of today were suddenly to perceive that he and his friends had merely been playing with pebbles and mistaking them for the foundations of the world. Suppose that such a man saw utmost space lie beyond before the current and worlds of men flash forth to the sun and beyond the sun to the systems beyond and that the voice of articulate speaking men echo in the waste void that bounds our thought. As analogies go, that's a pretty good analogy of what I've done. And you can understand now a little what I felt as I stood here one evening. It was a summer evening, and the valley looked much as it does now. When I stood here, and I saw before me the unutterable, unthinkable gulf that yawns profound between two worlds. The world of matter and the world of spirit. And I saw the great empty, deep stretch dim before me. And in that instant, a bridge of light leapt from the earth to the unknown shore, and the abyss was spanned. You may look in Brown Favour's book, if you like, and you will find that to the present-day men of science are unable to account for the presence or to specify the functions of a certain group of nerve cells in the brain. That group is, as it were, land to let, a mere waste place for fanciful theories. Now, I'm not in the position of Brown Favour and the specialists, and I'm perfectly instructed as to the possible functions of those nerve centres in the scheme of things. And with a touch, I can bring them into play. With a touch, I say, I can set free the current. With a touch, I can complete the communication between this world of sense and... Well, we shall be able to finish the sentence later on. Yes, the knife is necessary, but think what that knife will effect. I will level utterly the solid wall of sense, and probably for the first time since man was made, a spirit will gaze upon a spirit world. Clark, Mary will see the god Pan. But do you remember what you wrote to me? I thought it would be requisite that she... He whispered the rest into the doctor's ear. 
Oh, no, not at all, not at all. That's nonsense, I can assure you. Indeed, it's better as it is. I'm quite certain of that. Well, consider the matter well, Raymond. It's a great responsibility. Something might go wrong, and you'd be a miserable man for the rest of your days. Oh, no, I think not. Not even if the worst happened. Well, as you know, I rescued Mary from the gutter and from almost certain starvation when she was a child. I think her life is mine, to use as I see fit. Now, come on, it's getting late. I'd better go in. Dr Raymond led the way into the house, through the hall, and down a long, dark passage. He took a key from his pocket and opened a heavy door, motioned Clark into his laboratory. It had once been a billiard room and was lighted by a glass dome in the centre of the ceiling, whence there still shone a sad grey light on the figure of the doctor as he lit a lamp with a heavy shade and placed it on the table in the middle of the room. Clark looked about him. Scarcely a foot of wall remained bare, and there were shelves all around laden with bottles and vials of all shapes and colours. At one end stood a little Chippendale bookcase, and Raymond pointed to this. You see that parchment by Oswald Crollius? He was one of the first to show me the way, though I don't think he ever found it himself. That is a strange saying of his. In every grain of wheat there lies hidden the soul of a star. There was not much furniture in the laboratory. The table in the centre, a stone slab with a drain in one corner, the two armchairs in which Raymond and Clark were sitting, and that was all, except for an odd-looking chair at the furthest end of the room. Clark looked at it and raised his eyebrows. Yes, that's the chair, said Raymond. We may as well place it in position. He got up and wheeled the chair to the light and began raising and lowering it, letting down the seat, setting the back at various angles and adjusting the footrest. It looked comfortable enough, and Clark passed his hand over the soft green velvet as the doctor manipulated the levers. Well, now, Clark, make yourself quite comfortable. I have a couple of hours' work before me. I was obliged to leave certain matters to the last. Dr Raymond went to the stone slab and Clark watched him drearily as he bent over a row of vials and lit the flame under the crucible. The doctor had a small hand lamp, shaded as the larger one, on a ledge above his apparatus, and Clark, who sat in shadows, looked down at the great shadowy room, wondering at the bizarre effects of brilliant light and undefined darkness contrasting with one another. Soon he became conscious of an odd odour, at first, the merest suggestion of odour in the room, and as it grew more, decided he felt surprised that he was not reminded of the chemist's shop or the surgery. Clark found himself idly endeavouring to analyse the sensation, and, half-conscious, he began to think of a day, fifteen years ago, that he had spent roaming through woods and meadows near his own home. It was a burning day at the beginning of August, the heat had dimmed the outlines of all things and all distances with a faint mist, and people who observed the thermometer spoke of an abnormal register, of a temperature that was almost tropical. Strangely, that wonderfully hot day in the fifties rose up again in Clark's imagination. The sense of dazzling, all-pervading sunlight seemed to blot out the shadows and the lights of the laboratory and he felt again the heated air beating in gusts about his face, and saw the shimmer rising from the turf, and the myriad murmur of the summer. 
Well, I hope the smell doesn't annoy you, Clark. There's nothing unwholesome about it, but it might make you a bit sleepy, that's all. Clark heard the words quite distinctly and knew that Raymond was speaking to him, but for the life of him he could not rouse himself from his lethargy. He could only think of the lonely walk he had taken fifteen years ago. It was his last look at the fields and woods he had known since he was a child, and now it all stood out in brilliant light as a picture before him. Above all, there came to his nostrils the scent of summer, the smell of flowers mingled and the odour of the woods, of cool shaded places deep in the green depths, drawn forth by the sun's heat, and the scent of the good earth, lying as it were, with arms stretched forth and smiling lips, overpowering all. His fancies made him wander, as he had wandered long ago, from the fields into the wood, tracking a little path between the shining undergrowth of beech trees, and the trickle of water dropping from the limestone rock sounded as a clear melody in the dream. Thoughts began to go astray and to mingle with other thoughts. The beech alley was transformed into a path between ilex trees, and here and there a vine climbed from bough to bough and sent up waving tendrils and drooped with purple grapes and the sparse grey-green leaves of a wild olive tree stood out against the dark shadows of the ilex. Clark, in the deep folds of dream, was conscious that the path from his father's house had led him to an undiscovered country, and he was wondering at the strangeness of it all, when suddenly, in the place of the hum and murmur of the summer, an infinite silence seemed to fall on all things, and the wood was hushed. For a moment in time he stood face to face there with a presence that was neither man nor beast, neither the living nor the dead, but all things mingled, the form of all things but devoid of all form. And in that moment the sacrament of body and soul was dissolved, and a voice seemed to cry, Let us go hence! And in the darkness of darkness beyond the stars, the darkness of everlasting. When Clark woke up with a start, he saw Raymond pouring a few drops of some oily fluid into a green vial, which he stoppered tightly. Oh, you've been dozing, he said. The journey must have tired you out. What is done now? I'm going to fetch Mary. I shall be back in ten minutes. Clark lay back in his chair and wondered. It seemed as if he had but passed from one dream into another. He half expected to see the walls of the laboratory melt and disappear, and to awake in London, shuddering at his own sleeping fancies. But at last the door opened and the doctor returned, and behind him came a girl of about seventeen, dressed all in white. She was so beautiful that Clark did not wonder at what the doctor had written to him. She was blushing now. She was blushing now, over face and neck and arms, but Raymond seemed unmoved. Mary, he said, the time has come. You are quite free. Are you willing to trust yourself to me entirely? Oh, yes, dear. Do you hear that, Clark? You are my witness. Here is the chair, Mary. It's quite easy. Just sit in it and lean back. Are you ready? Oh, yes, dear, quite ready. Give me a kiss before you begin. The doctor stooped and kissed her mouth kindly enough. Now shut your eyes, he said. The girl closed her eyelids as if she were tired and longed for sleep, and Raymond placed the green vial to her nostrils. Her face grew white, whiter than her dress. She struggled faintly, and then, with the feeling of submission strong within her, crossed her arms upon her breast as a little child about to say her prayers. 
the bright light of the lamp fell full upon her, and Clark, watching changes fleeting over her face as the changes of the hills and the summer clouds float across the sun. And then she lay, all white and still, and the doctor turned up one of her eyelids. She was quite unconscious. Raymond pressed hard on one of the levers, and the chair instantly sank back. Clark saw him cutting away a circle, like a tonsure, from her hair, and the lamp was moved nearer. Dr. Raymond took a small glittering instrument from a little case, and Clark turned away shudderingly. When he looked again, the doctor was binding up the wound he had made. She will awake in five minutes, the doctor said, perfectly cool. There's nothing more to be done, we can only wait. The minutes passed slowly. They could hear a slow, heavy ticking. There was an old clock in the passage. Clark felt sick and faint. His knees shook beneath him. He could hardly stand. Suddenly, as they watched, they heard a long-drawn sigh, and suddenly did the colour that had vanished return to the girl's cheeks, and suddenly her eyes opened. Clark quailed before them. They shone with an awful light, looking far away, and a great wonder fell upon her face. Her hand stretched out as if to touch what was invisible, but in an instant the wonder faded and gave place to the most awful terror. The muscles of her face were hideously convulsed. She shook from head to foot. The soul seemed struggling and shuddering within the house of flesh. It was a horrible sight, and Clark rushed forward as she fell shrieking to the floor. Three days later, Raymond took Clark to Mary's bedside. She was lying wide awake, rolling her head from side to side, and grinning vacantly. Oh, yes, said the doctor, still quite cool. It is a great pity. She's a hopeless idiot. However, it could not be helped. And after all, she has seen the great god Pan. So, there we are. That is the end of the first part of the book, The Great God Pan. And so... Uh, so begins this, um, a classic of... Uh, Victorian horror literature. Um, the book itself was written in uh, 1894. It was uh, it was fully published as a short story. Um, this first chapter originally appeared in a uh, in a magazine, uh, just as a, a standalone story, which he uh, which was in 1890, and he. Uh, worked on it. Um, he produced uh, the next thing he wrote was the uh, the third chapter, which again he thought was going to be a, a sort of standalone um, short story, uh, again which was later uh, published by itself. And then only um, in 1893 he returned to these two chapters and uh, fitted them together into this uh, into this uh, story. Um, he was heavily influenced by. Um, earlier sort of gothic horror like Frankenstein where they combine uh, science and uh, the occult and alchemy. Um, there's a few little interesting points here uh, in the chapter. Um, they mention uh, the work of a chap called Oswald Crolius, who was a doctor and an alchemist who lived uh, 1563 to 1609. Uh, and he was a friend of um, Rudolf III, the Holy Roman Emperor, um, and uh, a European king, um, and through him he met uh, many alchemists. That jingling there is the cat who's just jumped up onto my shoulder. There we go. Hello, Betty. Um, 
and uh, and then through uh, Rudolf II, um, Oswald Crolius uh, became a very well-known uh, alchemist, and he met uh, many other sort of famous names uh, in alchemy, such as Edward Kelly uh, and Dr. John Dee, and. Um, uh, Ru- Rudolf II uh, was also thought to be uh, an early owner of the uh, the Voynich manuscript, which you might remember from the episode uh, I did uh, about a year ago now on uh, Soho Square. Um, you remember the Voynich manuscript was this curious book, potentially written by God, uh, which slipped through the cracks of reality and uh, ended up in a, a bookshop in Soho. Um, there's an interesting quote um, which uh, Arnold Machen puts in the, uh, the story here, which he attributes to Os- Oswald Crolius, um, in that every grain of wheat there lies hidden the soul of a star. And this um, philosophy, uh, I don't think was ever uh, part of Oswald Crolius's writings, but um, it was uh, certainly attributed or closely related to um, the work on Thelema by Alistair Crowley, who wrote that every man and every woman is a star. Um, and so there's these interesting links with uh, actually very uh, real um, alchemical thought written through the book, which he's relating to uh, the science of the Victorian age. But uh, the big question here is... Who was the great god Pan? Um, In mythology, uh, he was the ancient Greek god uh, of the wild, uh, of shepherds, of flocks, of um, the springtime, uh, of wild areas of the wilderness. Um, Because of his association with springtimes, he was always um, associated as well with uh, fertility. And often you'll see, uh, particularly in um, later representations of Pan, he's often um, got a great big erection. And um, there's a famous statue, I can't think of the name of it or where it is. I'm sure actually it probably is in um, the British Museum, but there's a a little carved statue of Pan uh, as a fawn, and he's um, having sex with a goat. Uh, And so that's often how he was portrayed. So he was always a sort of slightly uh, deviant spirit as well in lots of the mythological stories of Pan. Uh, He's often chasing down uh, various forest nymphs who are are hiding from him. Um, From his name, Pan, we get the word panic. Um, It meant in Greek a, a sudden fear. Uh, and it was often, certainly in the, the Greek, it was this fear which was brought on by the presence of a god. His heritage uh, is unknown. Uh, we don't know who his father was or his mother. Um, sometimes it said it was Hermes or Apollo. Uh, again, two gods which uh, I've spoken about before in relation to various uh, statues and places of interest in London. But it's it's almost certain that he, as a nature spirit, existed before the Olympians. He was a god uh, known to man before uh, Hermes or Apollo or any of these other spirits came to be, uh, which is why it's very rare you actually find uh, a physical um, stone-built temple to Pan. He, being a nature spirit, was often worshipped in uh, natural caves, in forest groves. Uh, I think there is... Um, one small temple, um, uh, uh, and I completely forgotten where it is. But there is, they think that there's one small sort of purpose-built temple, but the rest were, were fairly um, um, 
slapdash almost uh, natural places where he would be worshipped. Yeah. What's it Here we are. Um, in mythology, he supposedly gave Diana or Artemis her hunting dogs, um, which are usually depicted as greyhounds. Uh, he also gave the, the secret gift of, of premonition uh, and prophecy to the god Apollo. Uh, he's also the only god ever to be described uh, as dying uh, in a sort of in our human history. Um, the Greek historian uh, Plutarch relates that in the reign of Tiberius, which is um, 14 uh, to 37 CE, uh, a sailor named Thamus was on his way to Italy via Paxos in Greece. Uh, as he was sailing, a voice from the heavens called, Thamus, are you there? When you reach Greece, take care to proclaim that the great god Pan is dead. Uh, he got to shore, uh, he announced this uh, to the dockyard uh, amid a much uh, gnashing of teeth and groaning to the populace uh, of, uh, of, of Paxos. They couldn't believe that uh, the great god Pan had died. Um, interestingly, this occurs around the same time, uh, that, um, around the death of Jesus, uh, at the same sort of time. And so the, uh, it was always taken, to believe, uh, taken as a symbol that with the death of Pan, um, the Christian God had come to earth and had died and suddenly the religion of Christianity was taking off and with Christ coming to earth the old gods were being swept away uh, and certainly the, the first, the earliest, this great mythical nature spirit that existed before Zeus and Apollo and Hermes and Diana, um, the great elder weird mysterious god Pan died. Uh, interestingly as well, uh, if we think about this, and Pan being the god often uh, worshipped by, by shepherds, um, who is it that we see at the manger, at the stable, when Jesus is born? It's the shepherds. The shepherds have abandoned Pan uh, and moved over to this new Christian god. Um, it's very easy to see Pan. Actually, um, in mythology, he's depicted as a as a fawn. So he's got goat legs, slightly goaty features, uh, and of course the horns on his head being this sort of erotic, jolly, uh, slightly whimsical, dangerous spirit. Uh, it was very easy to see how the Christians turned Pan from a, uh, a god to be worshipped to a god to be feared. And, you know, a lot of his attributes were, were mixed up with that of um, various other horned gods and became this image of the devil. Um, in modern, uh, in modern, excuse me, modern paganism practices, um, the horned god being a sort of male spirit, um, he's Pan is often associated with um, uh, with this um, the modern idea of the horned god. And uh, there we have it. So the first part of uh, the great god Pan. There, um, slowly. I will, um, eventually as the book goes on, we'll delve more into um, a subject slightly closer to home and slightly closer to the invisible London as we know it um, as the story moves from uh, the countryside, which I guess is in, uh, in England somewhere, and we move uh, closer back into the streets of London. And so, fingers crossed, all going well, and if I... Uh, managed to uh, work very hard. Uh, in the meantime, I will be working on the second chapter uh, and we'll dive deeper into uh, the life of um, Arthur Mackham.
Arthur Machen, Macken, uh, and uh, a little bit about him and his uh, beliefs about London uh, and the various sort of occult thought he had, um, some of the, uh, the the clubs he was a member of, some of the other stories he wrote, uh, some of the friends he had, the history of um, the ancient gods in London, uh, as well as some other uh, magical and spiritual uh, writings, uh, which had a funny uh, habit of coming true. So there we are, ladies and gentlemen, and uh, everybody in between. Thank you very much for joining me after a, a very long break for uh, Invisible London. As I say, fingers crossed, I'll be working on the second part um, straight away. Hopefully, I can get that recorded tomorrow. Uh, and then there might be a, a break of a week or two before part three. But uh, we'll be going through. This is a, st uh, a story in eight parts. And uh, thank you very much. I hope you have a lovely evening. Goodbye. <laughs>